Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I can't tell you how excited I am to be starting this particular book, which is going to take us probably eight months uh, to ten months uh, to, to work through. Now, some people perhaps might think, why would you spend a year, basically, working through a book like Romans? Uh, some people perhaps might think, uh, why, why would you take the time to, to unpack uh, this book? And, and I've got just a short, simple thought on that. That is that life is short, hell is hot, and forever is a very long time. Okay? So you can just kind of put that down. Uh, that is why we are spending a year looking at this book. Now, I know you might have lots of needs coming here today. We come in here with lots of needs and ideas and, and, and what we think uh, God needs to give us, and we have lots of questions. But our greatest need is what the Bible calls salvation. That is our greatest need. Uh, for you or I to live in a separated state from God forever is absolutely horrific. For the people that we know in our neighborhoods, our friends, our coworkers, to live in that state would be horrific. Therefore, the greatest need that we have, despite what we might think it is this morning, is to know God and to know the depths of what God has done on your behalf in Christ Jesus. Nothing covers that subject quite like the book of Romans. Romans is the most important theological piece of literature ever written. I know, big statement, but it is. Uh, every other letter 
which that is what the book of Romans is, every other letter Paul wrote was in response to basically the stupid things that Christians do. Okay, so every other letter is a response to stuff that was happening in the midst of the churches that particularly he had planted. And it was the dumb stuff that was happening that he would then have to write them to offer them uh, both uh, theologically who Jesus is, but then to correct what was happening in their churches. But with Romans, Paul, the writer of this book, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment, he had never been to Rome. We hear that here in his statement. Uh, When we covered the book of Acts, we saw that story unfolding. Now, once he does get to Rome, uh, he doesn't kind of cozy up uh, uh, to to a nice warm fire and just gets to spend time with them. Instead, he ends up being under house arrest. And eventually, he ends up in prison where his head will be chopped off. So that's what he gets by wanting to go to Rome. That means Paul didn't plant this church. He's not writing in response to some event or some problem that was happening in Rome, but rather he is proactively writing his doctrine on the theology of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Now, this book, for good reason, has been called certain things. It's, it's the Fort Knox, if you would, of Bible doctrine. And, and that's because it guards the, the treasures that are waiting to be mined in this book. Donald Barnhouse declared that every Christian's Bible, when it falls on the floor, should open up to the book of Romans because it's been opened up there uh, that many times. Uh, it was upon the reading of this book that most, or maybe even all, of the great revivals throughout church history had their roots. Uh, As it was opened up, the power of the gospel of grace through faith was then unleashed. Thousands upon millions of believers have been impacted because of the reading of the words of this book. Uh, Augustine uh, knew that these words were valuable and important. As a young man, he was weighed down uh, by the heaviness of his insatiable desire uh, for sex and lust. Uh, He struggled with it. He wrestled over it. And in September of 386, as he sat there weeping in the garden of his friend, he heard kids singing the Latin words, take up and read. And next to him happened to be the scroll of Romans. And Romans 13, 13, and 14 was the text that he turned to. He saw that he needed to put on Christ. And in that moment, he became a believer. Uh, uh, Some of the greatest uh, thinkers and theologians have been impacted by this book. Over a thousand years later, after Augustine uh, uh, sat A man sat tormented uh, night and day by what he believed to be demons that were impacting him, devils that were impacting him. Knowing he could never be righteous enough to earn God's favor, he would beat himself, literally. Uh, He he would sleep outside in the freezing cold because he thought that that's what he uh, deserved. He would fast for long periods until he began to read Habakkuk and seeing those words that we just read here in Romans chapter 1, which proclaims that the just shall live by faith, Martin Luther began to comprehend that he was justified not by his righteous works, but by the righteous work of Christ and by faith in that. And so through Romans were sown some of the seeds of the Reformation. Uh, Several centuries later, a a minister from the Church of England named John Wesley set sail to be a missionary to Native Americans here. And after feeling like he had failed miserably on his way back to England, he declared, I went to save the Indians, but who will save me? Uh, It was on Wednesday evening, May 24th, 1738, that he wrote, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, 
where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The point is, is that multiple people have been impacted by this book, and because they were impacted by this book, we sit here today impacted by this book. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is a very hard book. And it's why I've probably stayed away from it for so long, <laughs> for teaching it on a Sunday morning. Uh, there might be things in here that we talk about um, that are very contrary, maybe even to your tradition or your church background. Um, there's going to be things that are going to push against where society and culture have embraced today. There might be things that you think, I don't know if I believe that right now, right? If you feel that way, just know that you are not the only one. Uh, I, I love to think about what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, uh, where Peter says that Paul's letters are hard to comprehend. They contain hard things. And, and he says that the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. If you're wondering who ignorant and unstable pe people are, it was a prophetic reference to social media. Um, now, what this means <laughs> is that when Peter's sitting in the Jerusalem Starbucks... And he's getting Paul's letter there, and he's, he's reading Paul's letter for the very first time. He's like, man, I don't know if I get that. Paul's letters are hard. So if that's you, um, you're in very good company along with Peter. Now, if you want to know the main theme of Romans, it's right here, and it is littered throughout this particular letter. And it comes kind of into a bold climax in verses 16 and 17. It is the reason for this letter uh, when Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith faith. Romans is a book, perhaps the most thorough book on this subject called the gospel. Uh, but it's not just the gospel for unbelievers. And that's really important for us to understand as we sit here as people that maybe walk with Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus. This is the gospel for believers as well. It's not just the sinners out there that need Jesus. It's the sinners in here, in my own heart today, that needs him as well. If you look at verse 7 there, uh, it says that this book was written to the saints. So this is the gospel for the saints. That means that the gospel is not just for the unbeliever. The gospel is not just what you need to begin a walk with Jesus. The gospel is for everyone, every day, and always. Uh, we will see that in these uh, first four chapters. If you kind of just want to unpack the theme of these first four chapters, so you kind of get a big overview of where we are headed. The first chapter of the book of Romans establishes that the Gentiles have turned away from the creator to worship created things. What that means is that that is idolatry. So Paul's going to unpack here the idolatry of uh, the Gentile. And then the Jews, he would understand, uh, would sit back, uh, and the Jews who we would call maybe the religious right uh, today uh, would look at all of the immorality of the Gentiles, and they would shout, Amen, right? You, you, you are horrific people. You are going to hell. You're going to experience God's wrath. 
But that's the first chapter. The second chapter says, hold on, my Jewish friends. Uh, The Jews have turned away from God. And they have put their trust not in God, but in their own self-righteousness. Thinking that the law of Moses makes them better than everyone else. As they sit kind of on these whitewashed thrones of traditional values. And condemn those that don't eat like them. uh, Worship like them. Act like them. Do ceremonies like them. Do feasts and festivals like them. And yet upon thorough examination, Paul would say, you want to judge people in these areas, but you don't do them yourselves. That's chapter two. So what does that mean? That means that both Jew and Gentile in this short overview are both sinners, which leads us to the crux of the matter in Romans chapter three, verse 23, where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we are all equal, Jew and Gentile religious and irreligious. Uh, We are legalists and lawbreakers, right? All under the banner of sin, and we all need salvation, which happens not through us, but outside of us. Which brings us to the fourth chapter, and we see that a promise was given. It takes us back to Genesis, and there was a promise given to a man named Abraham that through him, his seed, which would be Jesus Christ, singular seed, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we get to rest in God's faithfulness to God's promise, period. So that's kind of an overview of where we're headed over these first few months. Now, the gospel, this news about what Jesus has done is for everyone. And it is in every stage of the Christian life. Now, before we delve into what the message of the gospel is, let's talk about the man who is the writer of this letter and who himself had been deeply impacted by this message of the gospel. Uh, Verse 1 tells us here, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Paul. That tells us who the author is. Now, who was Paul? He was a former Pharisee. Uh, You could hashtag that religious jerk. That's kind of what Paul was, who he was. We saw his story in Acts. He's the guy that knows everything about everything, and he loved to argue about it. Uh, Now, the Pharisees, they were a sect in Judaism that were kind of hyper-devoted to the law of God. In Philippians, Paul tells us he was not just a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, He made it through like the top gun of Pharisee school, and he came out on the other side. He had a trainer. He was trained under Gamaliel, uh, one of the most sought-after lawyer kind of teachers of the law for his day. Uh, Back then, you didn't choose your teacher. You had to be chosen. And for the top teacher to want to choose Paul, you know that Paul was a smart cat. He he was a smart guy. He was brilliant. Uh, He would have had most, if not all, of the Hebrew scriptures memorized. He would have been proficient in multiple languages. He was zealous, not just for knowing the laws, but for also keeping them. Paul says in, in Philippians, if anybody thinks they are good at keeping the law, humbly, I was better at keeping the law. In other words, he's the one that's good at being good, at least on the outside. He was so zealous for what he thought was right in keeping the law, he devoted himself, we saw in Acts, to killing 
Christians. Uh, We may see that as a bad thing, but Paul, at least initially, saw what he was doing as a holy, righteous thing. He thought Christians, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, were the enemies of God, so he basically went jihad on Christianity. Today, we would call that a hate crime, or we might call him a religious terrorist, but that's who he was. In Acts 9, when he had received permission to go kill Christians, as he was on his way to a town called Damascus, there he met Jesus. He meets a savior, uh, and he receives grace. He gets this calling from Jesus to actually go talk about Jesus. So no longer would he be killing Christians. Instead, he would be a man that would be making disciples and planting churches. It's then that he started to realize that his zeal for being good and being religious had led him to a really horrific place. Um, uh, we, we think of people like uh, Bill Mayer. Do you know Bill Mayer and the Apostle Paul would both agree that religion can turn you into a really bad person, which is why religious people are the absolute worst. Everybody says amen. Uh, the gospel is not religion. It teaches that God offers salvation not uh, to those who earn it, Uh, as some type of like a reward for being good or keeping law, but those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. Uh, That includes sinners like Paul. It includes religious jerks like Paul. It includes murderers like Paul. So if Paul could receive this thing called grace, this free gift from God, then listen, that means anyone in here can receive that free gift. If you are good at being bad, The gospel is for you. Paul reveals that, right? Uh, That's some of us in here. Uh, And I know because I've seen some of your Facebook pages. Um, But even at the most, uh, you haven't murdered anyone yet, right? The gospel is for you. Uh, The gospel is also for those that are good at being good. Paul was better and the gospel was for him. Paul was the best. He was the elite of being good and the gospel was for him. And he gets hit with this powerful gospel and he is absolutely made undone by it. Now, because of that, Paul says, I am now, and we're still in verse one, haven't gone very far. He says, because of the gospel, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now that term servant there, it's doulos, it's a slave. This is a servant by choice. So he's saying, I've been so impacted by this glorious master that I have to serve him. I I can't not serve him. This is the opposite of what he had been doing as being a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, his zeal in religion was aimed to elevate him above other people. Now he sees his relationship to Jesus as the reason to actually lower himself humbly and serve him. As a Pharisee, when he encountered people who were sinful and had problems, he would say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. If you were awesome, you know, like me, you wouldn't have these problems. If you were a keeper of the law like me, you wouldn't have these issues. Uh, Now he would say, yes, I had lots of problems to thank God. It didn't stop Jesus from coming after me. Uh, The change in this Pharisee, of Paul, when you read his story and what happened to him is one of the great evidences of the reality that Jesus saves. 
He is absolutely the opposite, Paul is, of what he used to be. There's been a dynamic shift in who he is. As a Pharisee, uh, uh, when people would, would, would like wrong him or treat him badly, he would respond with vengeance. He would think he was righteous. And if you treat him badly, he would pay you back. Now Paul would say, I treated Jesus pretty badly too. Thank God he has continued loving me. As a Pharisee, when Paul saw someone in need, he'd say, wait, uh, I, have, I have mine, I have earned it, and I don't know anybody anything. Now he would say, thank God Jesus didn't keep what was his for himself. If so, I would be absolutely lost. See, the gospel, this thing that we're talking about, this gospel of grace produces in us a fundamentally different spirit than zealousness, which is what religion does. Religion makes you proud and self-centered. The gospel has the power to make you humble and generous. The gospel humbles you. Uh, you can even see it in Paul's own name. Before he met Jesus, Paul had a different name. Oftentimes in the scriptures, we see these name changes that happen because you get a new identity in Christ. Before, Paul went by the name Saul. Saul was very proud, right? He was the victorious uh, Israelite king who stood head and shoulders, if you know your Old Testament, above everyone else. But now he went by Paul, which in Latin means little. And I'll tell you what, it takes an act of God for a guy to want to be called little, um, which is fitting because that's how he now sees himself. He sees himself as small, right? Uh, but loved by a great God and a recipient of extravagant grace. The gospel transformed Saul the mighty into Paul the small. Uh, and, and, and I would just ask, like, think about your own transformation in the gospel. What has happened to you? How do you now see yourself in light of Jesus? When you really see Jesus for who he is and what he has accomplished, we get next to Jesus and Jesus makes us, he makes us small. But he also, because of his kindness, doesn't keep us there right? Uh, even though we feel small and imperfect next to him, compared to him, we also realize that we are so loved because of him, and that keeps me from utter hopelessness. So I don't just get around Jesus and feel small. I do feel that. I feel imperfect. I feel tainted, but I also don't feel hopeless because of what he has done for me in the gospel, and that's what the gospel does, and that's why it's called good news. Uh, Paul says here, that verse one, he's called to be an apostle of God. Now, what does that mean? Um, an apostle is just someone who is sent. He's a sent one on behalf of God. Paul knew that he had a job. He had a calling. He was sent by God to deliver a message that we will get into uh, here in a moment. Now, uh, there are an overwhelming number of resources that help people kind of discover their calling, discover who they are, uh, from Oprah to Forbes to the Huffington Post to at least five different TED Talks that you can find online and countless like Christian websites and books to find out your calling. And in those, there is a common kind of millennial uh, denominator, and that is your calling is your passion right? Whatever you're passionate about, that is what you are called to do. So you should live your passion, love your passion, do your passion. Now, Paul is actually uh, going to be doing that. He is living out his passion. He is passionate for Jesus and the gospel. He is called to share it, but even greater than declaring something he is passionate about, he's not just doing his passion. He is confident that God himself had called him to be a missionary. Uh, he has a mission, and his mission is the message that he now brings 
What is that message? The Bible says here, it is the gospel of God. And later on, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. It's powerful. It's impacting, right? The gospel is so amazing to Paul that he is willing to risk everything for it. He risks wealth. He risks health. He risks his acceptance. He risks friendship. He risks safety. All to finish his calling of declaring this message of the gospel of God. Now, why was Paul willing to risk so much? How does a man, when we watched his story through the book of Acts this past year, how does this man endure beatings? How does he endure like being stoned to death, shipwrecked? How does he not lose like heart in these areas? Why is he willing to declare this good news, this message to total strangers? Why should we talk about the message of the good news of the gospel? Um, shouldn't religion maybe be something our culture says that's just more privatized and you just kind of keep it to yourself? Not for Paul. See, Paul wanted what we at TFAB hopefully want. And if you're here today and you're new to maybe Christianity or the church, I'm just going to like own this. We want to convert you. Okay, that is our goal, is to convert you. We want you to know Jesus, uh, because remember, hell is hot, forever is a long time. Okay, life is short. Remember the mantra. We are not ashamed of that. We're not ashamed of the best news that meets our best need. And what's that news? It's in this term, gospel. The, the, this term we've been talking about is the word uanglio, okay? That literally means good herald, Somebody, it's a speaker, it's a, it's a declarer of something. In the first century, if you went into the battlefield and the emperor was out there and the emperor won a great victory which secured peace for the country and established authority for the emperor, he would then send these heralds, these anglio, to declare his victory of peace and authority. The gospel, when we talk about the gospel, it is a announcement. That's all it is. It is an announcement. It is a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is news. It is something that actually happened. Something happened and you need to hear it, not to do it, but to actually simply receive it. So the apostle Paul is the herald of this announcement. God's announcement, because it's God's announcement, we, like Paul, are not at liberty to like reshape it, right? To make it sound maybe more appealing uh, for our day. We're not to domesticate it or to make it more like comfortable uh, for us to like receive or to partake of. No, it is an announcement of something that happened. Neither is the gospel new, okay? This isn't new. Rather, God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, read verse 2 and 3 with me. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, what's it telling us there? Paul is not ashamed of the news that he's delivering, this, this, this announcement that he's bringing to people, because he knows the validity of the gospel. He says here, this was something that didn't just happen in the dark. 
This was a prophetical message that had been being declared throughout history. The Old Testament, and you hear me say this a lot, is all about Jesus. That is what it is about. All the scriptures point forward to this amazing announcement. Every page that God wrote uh, before outlines what he has now declared kind of in full color in the coming and the dying of Jesus and the resurrecting of Jesus. Now, you hear me say this over and over, but the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament, every book was pointing to him. If you think about it, in Genesis, Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman. In Exodus, he becomes this beautiful Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our better temple and he is our high priest. In Numbers, he's that pillar of cloud by day and and, and the fire by night that guides and directs us. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet who is greater than Moses that was promised. In Joshua, he becomes, as Hebrews tells us, the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the true and better hero and the better savior. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our shepherd king. And in Kings, he is the righteous and true and better ruler. In Chronicles, he's the restorer of the kingdom. And in Ezra, he becomes the faithful scribe to us. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder and restorer of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, he is our advocate, risking his life to restore us to royalty. He is the better Mordecai. Uh, In Job, he is our everlasting redeemer. In Psalms, he is the good shepherd. And in Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning of life under the sun. Uh, In the Song of Solomon, he's the loving bridegroom. In, In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant, our prince of peace, our wonderful counselor who was wounded for our transgressions. In Jeremiah, he's the righteous branch. And in Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. In Daniel, he's the better king with a better kingdom that is coming in the clouds who meets us in the midst of the fire. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband pursuing his unfaithful bride. In Joel, he's the restorer of the years of the locusts have eaten. And in Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, he's the better one that was cast into the depths so that we could be spared and saved. In Micah, he is the everlasting ruler who is born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is our reason to rejoice when the fields are empty. In Zephaniah, he is the great reformer. In Haggai, he is our cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pierced sun. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing wings, promising that hope is coming. Hope you got it all. There's a test later. It's pretty awesome. The whole Old Testament for a couple thousand years was just waiting, was, was telling us Something better, someone better is coming. And then the son came. And in verse four, it tells us, and he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The son came, the son gave up his life, The son died on our behalf. 
the Son was resurrected. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? First and foremost, because it's provable prophetically. It was being mentioned and talked about. But the second thing is that the gospel itself, like what Jesus did, is a provable fact. That's why he's not ashamed of this. That's why he's not cowering in this message. He knows that this didn't just kind of happen in the dark somewhere. No, this happened. And because it's provable, because Jesus really came, and because Jesus really died, and because Jesus resurrected, that made this gospel, this good news, real for the apostle Paul. Like, we, sometimes we think, why should we believe that this good news from God is absolutely true? And that is because Jesus, a historical figure, really did live. Jesus, a historical figure, really did die. Jesus really did resurrect. He puts all of his Easter eggs in the basket of the resurrection. That puts him in a very different category. Jesus, not Paul. Only Jesus Christ claimed that he would die and that he would resurrect. Only Jesus did that. No other prophet, no other religion. You don't have Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna uh, doing those things. Well, you say skeptically, maybe people would say, did he really raise from the dead? I mean, that seems to be kind of a fun little game that people like to play on the internet or around Easter on on the History Channel. Over 500 witnesses, Paul writes in Corinthians 15, over 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus. More witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus than there was to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yet no one doubts that that document was signed. Uh, uh, some people might say, I heard, um, you know, somebody disguised as a Roman guard, took a sponge filled with kind of this knockout drug, gave it to him on the cross. And after three days, uh, he simply claimed to have died and raised from the dead. But he wasn't really dead. Um, that gets really hard to believe um, because he was beaten pretty bad. Um, uh, his beard was plucked out. He was nailed to a cross. He had a spear stuck into his side. And then you place somebody in that condition in a tomb for three days without food, water, or fresh air. And he just raises up, right? Pushes that two-ton stone out of the way, takes on a few Roman soldiers simply to proclaim that he has resurrected. You have to have a lot of faith to believe that that is the story that happened here. Uh, Maybe he died and Jewish leaders uh, took his body to kind of just stick it to the disciples because they were so loving of their leader. Jews hated the rise of Christianity. Uh, If that was the case, as we read through the book of Acts, all they would have to do is produce a body in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus resurrected and he stayed there. That's where the story grew. That is where the gospel shot out was in the very place that people say, oh, no, 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 maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe people didn't really know. Uh, Maybe it was Rome. History shows that Christianity ends up dividing the Roman Empire. And the Romans could have saved their empire and the trouble of killing millions of Christians by simply producing this body. Um, And then there's uh, the the adage that somebody has said that maybe the ladies simply went to the wrong tomb. I don't think you can say that in 2019. Uh, It's terribly condescending. Uh, But don't you think somebody would have checked that out? Somebody's going to check that out, right? Maybe it was the disciples. Maybe they stole his body to keep kind of his teachings alive. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, But Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled in oil. Uh, James was sawn in half. Thomas was speared in the back. Andrew's brains were beaten out with a club. Um, The first Christians, their families were raped, tortured, murdered. Uh, Many would die brutal deaths rather than simply deny he rose from the dead. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't work. And now you have Paul. 
Paul, the killer of Christians, is now a church planter. It makes no sense unless Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul really did see on the road to Damascus, Jesus. Paul was not ashamed of this gospel that he's writing. Paul was not ashamed of being beat up. He was not ashamed of going to jail because he knew the prophecy, knew it very well, and because it was a provable fact in the resurrection. Now, verse 5, also for Paul, as we kind of continue to go through this, says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. See, the gospel, it's not just something that was like provable and it wasn't just something that was prophetic. It was personal for him. Like he has got this renewed beginning, regenerated relationship with God. And so for him, he's saying, I can't not do this. I have been called as an apostle to go. Jesus has impacted my life so greatly, I have to declare it to all the nations. Paul saw the message of grace as a distinguishing characteristic of the gospel. Now, those that say that all religions are simply teaching the same thing simply demonstrate they have never really looked at the gospel of grace deeply. They don't really understand the gospel. Um, Every religion in the world works off of this particular premise. I obey, right? The gospel works off the opposite. I am accepted, right? I am accepted, which is why I want to obey. Every other religion is, I obey, therefore I will be accepted. Very different. Very different. Now, when you get that, that the gospel is something that's done outside of you, for you, right? And you receive that, it produces something in us. Look at what verses 6 and 7 says. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you get that the gospel is a declarative message, God has done something on your behalf. It is for you. Then, if you get this, you belong to Jesus, the Bible says. You are loved by God and accepted because of Jesus. The Bible then goes on to say, you are a saint because of Jesus. Now, if you come from more of a Catholic background, that terminology of saint was used to like, you know, put like a big S on people that did great things for God, right? It's kind of like the Superman under the shirt, right? That's not what this is saying. All of us are saints. There are only two groups of people, saints and ain'ts. That's, that, that, that's all that there are. So you are, if you are loved by God, you believe God, you are a saint Not because you are a saint, we all know you aren't, but because of what God has done on your behalf. You're a saint because of Jesus. And if you're a saint because of Jesus, the Bible says you have received grace, this free gift, and you are at peace with God because of Jesus. See, before we were outsiders, that's what Sinai did. Sinai, the Old Testament, revealed that we didn't have access to God. Only Moses was able to go up uh, when, when the law was being given. Only Moses could get there. And even at that, God was so nuclear, he's so holy, he couldn't get close. 
We couldn't keep his laws, but the moment Christ was crucified, the veil in the temple that blocked access to God was also torn apart, symbolizing that now we have peace with God because of Jesus. We are at peace. You are at peace with God because of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're like looking over your shoulder, like when's God gonna get me? When's all that stuff gonna catch up with me? Uh, is God after me? He is, he's after your heart to say that there is peace now because of Jesus. Because of all that, all those things Paul experienced, listen to what he now says. And this is where we land the plane this morning. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, Paul says, I mention you, I'm praying for you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I wanna see you, I wanna go to Rome. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel, there it is again, to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He says, I am eager to go to Rome, just like every Instagram mom ever said. Uh, I am eager to be there, but I'm not there to go sightseeing. I am there because I want to impart to you some spiritual gift of mine. And I know that because we're the body of Christ, you also will mutually encourage me. He didn't see him higher than or greater than or more awesome than. He wanted to go there to encourage them, but to also be encouraged by the church that was there. But then he says, I am under obligation and I am eager to preach the gospel to you, and I am not ashamed of it. And it's not just that it was prophetic and provable and personal. No, Paul knew something about the gospel. He knew that this was the power to save. The only way to save was through this message of the gospel. And in every age, it is possible to be ashamed of the gospel. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you didn't speak up. There was an opportunity to share Christ. And, and you kind of felt like a little bit back from it. Maybe because you didn't fully know it. Maybe because you didn't fully have it impacted. Maybe you hadn't fully settled yet inside your heart. In every age, it's possible to be ashamed because honestly, the gospel is actually really offensive. Uh, Tim Keller, he says, the gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, it's super insulting. Like if you tell somebody that, it's super insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift to you. Now this offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. So that's the per first person that it offends. It offends those that tells them, you're not awesome. It offends, you're not that great. The second thing is that the gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. 
Like God did something on our behalf. It tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of the son of God could actually save us. This, this also offends the modern cult kind of, of like self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity, right? So it's like, wait, we're not that great? No, we're not. We're not that good? No, we're not. We couldn't do it on our own? No, we could not. Third, the gospel, by telling us that by trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby it insists that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. We don't like losing our autonomy. Fourth, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying. And that following him means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. Like if I just get Jesus and I get the magic bubble, I got a prosperity gospel, I got Jesus, nothing happens to me anymore. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. He isn't safe, right? Yet Paul, in all of this, is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, verse 16 says. Paul is saying that this gospel is not merely a concept, it's not a philosophy, but in the gospel, these words and power come together. The message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. And Paul says that the gospel is therefore a power in itself. He doesn't say it brings power or it has power, but it actually is powerful. The message of Christ died and resurrected for you, his life imputed for you, his body atoned for you is powerful. His life for yours is powerful. The gospel message is actually the power of God in like verbal, cognitive form. And when you hear it and you hear it and your heart gets it, it lifts people up, it transforms and it changes. He is the proof of that. When it is outlined and explained or reflected on, power is actually released because of the gospel of God. And if we take it personally, we find the full power of it. It has the ability to completely change minds, hearts, life orientation, as we will see, our understanding of everything that happens, the way people relate to one another, and so on. Most of all, it is powerful because it does what no other power on earth can do, and that is actually save us and reconcile us to God and guarantee us a place in the kingdom of God forever. And all that is required is to know this salvation is believed. It is offered, he says here, to everyone that believes. The only way to receive the gospel and its power is through faith. Belief that it happened on your behalf. Receive it, apply it to your life. You don't receive the gospel by being good or doing good, but through belief, the Bible says. It says, for the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Those that are made righteous do so by faith and an event news that actually happened. Faith in Christ. That he, not me, is my righteousness. And listen, we do not become righteous by faith. 
okay? Uh, uh, and, and then maintain it kind of through our own goodness as we kind of move forward. All of saving is faith in Christ. Now, who gets to be included in this? It's so cool. Jews and Greeks, barbarians, you're one of those, right? It's all of us. It is humanity gets to be included in this. In other words, which is why Paul was eager to proclaim this news. And he wanted to go to Rome because the old adage was true. If all roads lead to Rome, the gospel, if impacting in Rome, would then have roads flowing out from it. And the gospel would go to where? All the nations, all places. He's like, I got to get to Rome. I need, to, I need to write Rome about the greatness of Christ. So Jews and Greeks all over the world. So let me tell you this simply, uh, the simple truth today. God loves you. He loves you today so much that he did something on your behalf. He doesn't love some like future better version of you, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't love like you when you're getting yourself help along the way. Or when you finally get all your stuff together. No, he loves you today. He loved you enough, as Paul says, while you were lame and without strength. That is the description of us, like where we are. When we are lame and without strength, the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. He loved you enough to die for you, to resurrect for you, and offer his life in exchange for yours. And if you believe Jesus, the Bible calls you righteous by faith. Your job is not to be better or to try harder to earn his favor. But as Journey declared, you just don't stop believing. That's your job, right? Rest in that, that the righteous live by faith, that Jesus is their righteousness, and that this is news. And now it's news to be talked about. It's news that we get to rest in. It's news that we find power in. It is the best news. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for good news that came from you for us. We are thankful for Paul, whose life was amazingly transformed and who did what he was called to do. Talk about you. And God, we thank you for the transforming work of the power of the gospel. We thank you that you've given us lips and feet to go and to share good news not because our salvation is dependent upon it, but because you've given us this and now you've called us and we get to be missionaries who are not ashamed of the gospel. It is your power. We say thank you for that today. We honor you in that today. And now we proclaim the gospel through song. We receive your body, your blood as we come to your table. And we know that that is a grace that's been imparted to us. So thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.